Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Velkommen til sesong 3 av podcastserien De som bygger det nye Norge Produsert av Oslo Business Forum I samarbeid med Silvia Ceres Hej og velkommen til dagens episode av De som bygger det nye Norge Med Silvia Ceres og Oslo Business Forum I dag i studiet med oss har vi en god venn av mig, Frode Ødegård, eller Odegaard han har flyttet til Silicon Valley for veldig mange år siden og har egentlig levd der mesteparten av livet sitt han er norsk altså, men mer komfortabel på engelsk så vi kjører herfra på engelsk Welcome Frode Thanks, great to be here It's been 27 years so you have to forgive my yeah. He understands everything in Norwegian so you can't really um, you know um, say anything you want but um, he, he'll smile back whatever you say that's a nice thing Frode, um, I love it when you visit Oslo because you are one of the really few people that uh, I can have this super nerdy formal methods humor with that everybody else would else would just you know uh, basically leave me immediately. Uh, we love talking about how formal methods have real relevance for the world today with its huge complexity because they help us understand structure and the meaning of structure, and then apply that to things like politics or organizations. And you have a super interesting anthropological view of this whole revolution happening now. So we'll spend most of our time talking about that. But before we get to that, I usually ask people to introduce themselves by saying a few personal words, words about who you are and why why you are like you are. Yeah, well... <laughs> the, the latter is a big mystery, maybe, but uh, but I, I uh, well, I was born here in town actually, so so um, and went to high school in uh, in Norway, did my first uh, uh, software startup here, and then I left for for Silicon Valley, um, yeah, twenty seven years ago. How old are you? So I'll be uh, I'll be fifty this summer, wow. which is pretty scary. <laughs> so like my hubby, yeah, yeah. So um, but I'm told I don't have the maturity of someone my age, so <laughs> hopefully that's a good thing. So. Yeah. Um, what did you study? Um, you, you don't like me asking this, but it's a great <laughs> no, story. It, it is kind of a well. It, maybe it's uh, not so common here, but it, actually, it's, say also how you moved to the US. What's that? How did you move to the US? Oh well, what happened was I, I um, when I did this this uh, software startup was to build development tools for embedded systems development, and I couldn't really find any venture capital here. And so, uh, how old were you? So I was uh, I was 22 then, and I'd already started traveling back and forth on a regular basis. Um, I was I was on a couple of ISO standards committees by then. I was you know fairly active uh, traveling. So so I'd started to to get to know some people in the valley. I knew that's where I wanted to go. Um, and so yes, yeah, so I closed the doors of my my startup in, in Oslo, where I couldn't find any more capital, and uh, moved to the valley. And then the year after, I love I, how people from the valley just say the valley. Yeah, imagine <laughs> if we started just saying, you know, I wanted to move to the fjord, and so yeah. I moved to the fjord. <laughs> Well, in Silicon Valley, there's only one valley, but <laughs> I know, I know. So, so the valleys in Oslo, here. there is only uh, one fjord. So <laughs> the the valleys here are much prettier, but uh, it is what it is. So, um, and uh, yeah, after a year, I won in the green card lottery, and I was all set. So, and I didn't come back for seven years once I left. So, so it was a it was. A, you got money for your startup? Um, uh, I didn't have to. I just I I um instead of doing another product company, I started sort of a miniature contract research and development company. And 
Um, what does that mean? Well, I, I'd always admired from from afar, like organizations like SRI International, like the Stanford Research Institute and Xerox Park and so on, which were bastions of, of you know breakthrough innovation. And I wanted to have something like that myself. So I created a you know with a handful of people, kind of a, a, a micro version of that, and we did some cool things with with applying you know very theoretical stuff in computer science to solving difficult problems in the industry. Um, How does that work? Well, um, it's it's um, uh, I can give you one example. For, so quite a while ago, people were very concerned about the Y two K crisis. So all this computer software was written, you know, with, with assuming that we'd have two digit, digit years, and there was all this legacy software that had to be rewritten or, or and the world will crash. Yeah, and uh, somehow the world didn't crash, <laughs> and I still don't know if that was because the fears were exaggerated or or because we were just so successful, everyone working Fixing that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so that allowed me to to use a lot of my my understanding and passion for how to use mathematical logic and, and use sort of this more structured formal thinking to, to analyze how software systems and, and, and larger systems really function and then be able to change them in a safe way. So, so you went from analyzing and understanding software systems to analyzing and understanding organizations. Yeah. The, the, how, how did that happen? The way that came about was um, that I, I, uh, um, after a few years of doing the formal methods research stuff, I became more interested in in helping organizations build better software in the first place. Um, and um, I did a lot of work with some you know, larger companies like AT&T and Sony and so on. Um, and of course, what I discovered uh, was what everyone else has discovered was, was these organizations were often quite dysfunctional in terms of their structure, in terms of their culture, you know, the type of leadership they had. And what does that mean, really? Too hierarchical, too stiff? Too hierarchical, uh, and just culturally, you know, people had difficulty, you know, just sharing bad news, and and you get a lot of sort of um, not just direct fear, but sort of this passive aggressive behavior, and you know, you see this in companies all over the world. It's not just over there. So, um, so I, I started quickly realizing this is not just about not understanding the. You know the the engineering practices, and you know it was a, it was deeper, more of a multi-dimensional problem, and uh, so that's what got me interested in in organizational design and organizational redesign, which I I worked on for quite a while. What really fascinates me is how you use everything from you know uh, game theory and 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 higher order functional programming to kind of try to understand the problem of structures in organizations, which really is sort of culture. Yeah, I mean it's it's a. Uh, I remember joking that even though I wasn't officially doing formal methods anymore, I was tricking people into doing formal methods by teaching them concepts in organizational design, yeah. which were basically applications of of these computer science ideas. And and now you see people, you know, I think everyday people find themselves using these metaphors. Like people get overwhelmed, they'll tell you, you know, my inbox is full. And they're not just talking about their email inbox, they're talking about their brain. Yeah. Right? So these metaphors are kind of becoming more commonplace now. But the way organizations were designed originally um, was, uh, you know, hadn't changed a lot since the Bronze Age, right? We'll and get so, back to that. So Just now things are more complex, and we need more, more. We need richer ideas to think about and how to describe and design organizations now than we used to. These amazing network ideas for organizations. But let's let's get back to that. I just want you to say a few words about what you do now. So you're the founder and the CEO of Postlin Institute. That's correct. Yeah. And, 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 and what is that? So the Postlin Institute is a um, is a consulting and and primarily research organization, and our mission is to reinvent management science, reinvent management thinking for this transition we're going through, um, which we think is a transition to a post-industrial economy and a post-industrial civilization. And most mainstream management thinking is still based on industrial era assumptions, maybe upgraded a little bit with IT, but that's still kind of the, the mindset that, um, you know, that, that permeates management thinking today. So, so now let's get to the Bronze Age and what's wrong with the industrial way of <laughs> managing things. Well, the, How, you have a really nice story about, you know, organizational history in five minutes yeah. or, or 50, if you're given 50. <laughs> now you're given five. How does that work? Or maybe, maybe it won't take that long. I have a lot of practice now <laughs> telling this. But um, essentially, we spent, um, so, so the Postley Institute um, came out of a, 
a predecessor uh, um, company called uh, Lean Systems Institute. And so I was heavily involved in taking these industrial uh, era sort of state-of-the-art management um, uh, you know, ideas from places like Toyota and that was you know, lean, lean thinking, which is also well-known in Norway, and reinventing that for knowledge-based, modern knowledge-based organizations. And after doing that with, you know, with companies like Honeywell and Lockheed and some really large enterprises for, we did that for, for 10 years, um, I sort of had this epiphany that, that there was a reason why it became harder and harder for these large companies to keep up with all the changes that were happening all around us. And it wasn't just about technology. It wasn't just about how they needed to come up with new, uh, uh, say, cloud-based business models or digital business models. There was something deeper. So... I personally spent about a year um, doing a lot of reading of, of you know history, anthropology, and so on, and looking at how human, um, the way humans organize work, and, and really sort of human economic history, how that's changed over time, going back to the, the old Stone Age or the Paleolithic, and then noticing that each time we went into a new anthropological era, there was basically a, some sort of idea or a tech disruption that that caused that to happen. So for example, um, 12,000 years ago, uh, the first humans, um, somewhere in, in, you know, South Eastern and, uh, Turkey and Northern Syria, you know, today started experimenting with part-time, um, agriculture. And after a couple of thousand years, that became full-time agriculture. So we went from the Paleolithic to the Mesolithic. And that's also when we had you know, the first people started living in teepees. They have sort of pop-up villages. And then in the, in the beginning of the, of the Neolithic, when, when full-time agriculture uh, began 10,000 years ago, people started building villages. And you see, now you see division of labor, the first silos, we talk about organizational silos, the first silos were corn silos. Um, and then you, this is the origin of what you saw in, in much later in cultures um, as caste systems. You had specialization in, you know, uh, you, have, you have a religious function, so there's the priest caste. Um, you have warriors who protect the crops. Uh, you have people who, who uh, look after the, the livestock. That's also something that came with full-time agriculture. Um, and you had the farmers and, and so on. And of course, someone had to make the pottery as well. Mm-hmm. So um, now then in... in um, uh, in the Bronze Age, of course, now you see a an explosion of of new technologies, which really form the backbone of all organizations since the invention of writing systems. So now we could record knowledge in writing. Um, I think the oldest tablet they found, which is a you know business letter, is someone complaining about a bad uh, 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 grain delivery. And how they still owe money. <laughs> they didn't start complaining about air conditioning systems yet. Uh, no, not that yet. That came later. <laughs> uh, that came a little bit later. Um, and um, and then they invented, you know, accounting and, and written laws and court systems and, and kind of the whole way of organizing organizational bureaucracies. All of that's sort of what we have today. It's sort of a high-tech version of what existed in the Bronze Age. So you're saying this was a way of dealing with complexity of the society that had to do all this specialized work? Well, I, I think there was more complexity that came out of that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, growing human population, and eventually over time, people will, in, you know, will, will think of new things, and then increasing population density, and you know, the first cities were built, and so on. So, so then, um, and then as you see in the the... Then, then you get uh, about 1200 BC, you get the Bronze Age collapse. Uh, and part of that, aside from a volcano eruption, was, the, was someone figured out how to make iron swords. So that's mm. the beginning of the Iron Age. And then the whole, that whole world in, uh, in the Middle East, they went through... Power sort of, reshuffle. Yeah, there was a kind of a dark age. I mean, the, mm. the, the, um, all the major civilizations basically temporarily sort of went under. Um, and, um, and then what came came back, uh, what came after that was sort of the Greek revival, um, you know, the invention of, of the uh, the Greek alphabet that we would recognize today, the ancient Greek alphabet. Um, and then, you know, then you see another few centuries and then you get thinkers like, like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and, you know, the birth of scientific thinking and logic and all of this stuff. So where does so, this take you to formal methods? Well, it was really, that was really when people started using axiomatic thinking to, to reason about what was going on and kind of be able to separate, you know, premises from conclusions and, you know, having ways of arguing and, um, and so on. But, 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 um, you, you, and you see this lead to 
eventually kind of a, a after several centuries to a sort of a scientific revolution. Um, and in Europe, of course, we get, you know, the, the rediscovery, you know, of, of Greek civilization. We get the, the Renaissance and the, you know, the enlightenment and the, and the, you know, the scientific revolution and, and also revolution around ideas of political and economic freedom. Um, and, um, so we've taken for granted, you know, the generation that's grown up, you know, our generation, um, the fruits of, the, uh, of the industrial revolution and then the sort of the, the IT revolution that began, uh, uh you know, in this century, what rather the in the last, in, rather in the last century, I forget which century it is now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, things like, like, you know, uh, cheap mass production, um, you know, there's food available everywhere, you know, at least in the Western world. Uh, and now because of the internet now in this century, we have, you know, information at our fingertips and we take that for granted. We're always connected and all of this stuff. Um, and, um, but we're about to undergo another big change, uh, maybe bigger well. than all the other ones. Well, as big as, you know, as big as the transition from, um, from say the Mesolithic to the Neolithic or from the Paleolithic to the Mesolithic. Why, why is it so big now? Well, everyone thinks about, um, Everyone thinks about new technology, well, not everyone, but a lot of people think about new technology as being about sort of efficiency, right? And, and it's true. So there are things become, become, um, you know, we can, we can use uh, today's rudimentary AI technology, you know, to automate mm. things. and Better, and, cheaper, safer. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that's kind of an incremental continuation of what we've mm. had. That's been going on for decades. I mean, digitalization really started in the 1980s, right? So that, this is not a new thing, but, but it's the rewiring of the structure of industries. Um, and why does that happen now? Well, it's because we have technology now that allows us to build organizations that are themselves sort of loosely coupled, just-in-time structures, and that allows to to have these organizations to have business models where you can yeah, use the services of people or you can make use of assets without owning those assets or employing those people. And of course, that's what business models like uh, Airbnb and Uber and so on have shown. Why, that, why is that so? Is it because you, you're not dependent on, on owning the labor uh, force anymore or the capital investments? It's right. all about data gathering or where, where does well, this about, change come all, about? Yeah, it's all about really connecting um, connecting the, the user or the end user of the buyer with the asset or the service in a more capital efficient way. Um, and the, the result of that is that industries, the, the shape of industries is changing dramatically. And if you are positioned in because the wrong- Because we're cutting out the middlemen? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and, and so you can see this happening with, um, uh, you know, with, the, with retail, you can see this happening in a whole bunch of industries where people realize that they can have um, the good or the service provided to them you know, faster in a more, in a more directed, a more direct, uh, fashion. And, and also with physical production, you know, the, one of the side effects of the industrial revolution was this paradigm of centralized production, you know, for efficiency. Um, and now what we're seeing with, you know, 3d printing is the first primitive version of this, you know, we're seeing on-site manufacturing of physical goods, uh, you know, closer and closer to the point of use, the point of consumption. Um, and so, so what's happening is, is over this period is you have our, the master of the world around us, you know, technology is improved and improved. And now it's really improving exponentially at the same time, um, the, the trend towards, um, top down hierarchy and centralization, top down management of resources that suddenly is changing as we call that stratification stratification and centralization. So whereas technology development con is continuing to go up into the sky now, even more, uh, the stratification is collapsing. And it's a separation of these two trends for the first time that is kind of the signal for why we're moving into post-industrial um, era now. We can basically work hyper-efficiently without all the middlemen now that if, if we are able to gather enough data to, to, to build more sales cases, uh, what, what I'm trying to get to is, um, so there is a structural change driven by new efficiencies in technology, but also that this is not only about uh, one kind of technology. We talked a lot about the exponentiality of everything, really. Right. Why does that happen? Well, it's, you have to go back to the beginning of, of uh, some fundamental technologies in, um, in the computer industry. You know, so computing capacity, 
uh, communications capacity, storage capacity, um, but also any other fields, uh, which are is basically every field that that rides on top of that stack, if you will. You know, so Excel, genetics, yeah, our ex- because we do digitally based they're accelerated DNA as sequencing. Well. Mm. Yeah, and then because of the internet, it's so much easier for the knowledge to spread, for people to collaborate, um, and that that's another factor, you know, of how things accelerate. But it's it's not just about technology for efficiency. It's really about how we have this much more loosely coupled structure now, where anyone anywhere can um, uh, can sort of look at how an industry ticks find out how they can capitalize on rewiring that industry they can create a new uh, a new business model around that that benefits from that or causes that restructuring to happen um and they can be a global organization with you know with a half a dozen people or a dozen people very very rapidly so through you talk about rewiring organizations and industries mm-hmm. what about rewiring societies is that happening i don't think it's happening just yet. I think we're seeing maybe the beginning of it, and, and there is an economic aspect to that, of course, and there is a cultural aspect to it. Um, I think in a lot of countries you have regulatory frameworks that's holding that back somewhat. Um, there is also um, an issue of, of you know mindset, of course, that people may be tied more to, to um, predictability, comfort, um, risk reduction in terms of how they live their lives and so on. But, but when you know, your, your employer goes out of business, um and the industry that you've spent you know 20 years of your career in looks dramatically different then that's a signal for how you know something has really changed and i, I saw a newspaper headline uh i think it was finance i've or something mm-hmm. uh just a few days ago where they predicted um that you know norway would see the loss of four or five hundred thousand jobs in the next 10 to 15 years it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that there won't be new jobs created but of course, there is a um, there's a transition there when you know new skills are going to be needed and and so on. And this isn't just for people losing their jobs; it's for shareholders in those companies who will have you know they will see loss of value as a result of this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, I need to follow up on one thing there that I, I love discussing with you and it's about you know uh, you need people with new skills mm-hmm. what should those skills be well there's a lot we, of uh, reason why uh, we yeah. used to laugh about uh, we are programmers both of us at some level yeah and we still laugh when people say they want to teach kids to code yeah and you know it's it's um uh, uh when even when i hear to code as a verb i kind of shudder because uh, ideally what you'd like people to learn if they're going to go into that is to do yes proper software engineering and which is a lot deeper than just what does that mean well it it means engineering is really about applying scientific knowledge to solve practical problems under economic and, and time constraints right so if you're if you're built designing a bridge you know there are there are you know there's physics involved you have to understand what the load bearing capacity of the bridge is going to be you have to do some safety calculations you know you have to build models you're not just just you know you're not just like getting you're not attending a weekend boot camp you know this is a serious project human lives depend on this and so on well it's the same thing with software you know people have died from from buggy software you have medical devices that don't function properly and so on so so and i think that developing software especially now that we have much more complex systems that are interacting you know you have drones you're going to have well very soon you're going to have drones flying around um uh you have all kinds of stuff happening you know real time these these systems need to be safe they need to function and this idea that people can just kind of attend the boot camp and some somehow they've mastered this is sort of ridiculous um not to me but what people really need to do is to to invest long term in themselves learning more about science learning more about the engineering learning more about history learning more about how the world functions you know how things on, work yeah how mm-hmm. on different levels yeah and develop mm-hmm. a curiosity around that um and um and that's not just something you do in university or in school it's it's you know it's how to live your life basically mm-hmm. right i i read recently a book 
uh, called uh, um, Algorithms to Live By. And I loved it. We didn't have time to talk about this offline. But basically, it's about, um, you know, um, two Stanford professors, young guys, uh, explain the most important algorithms we have in programming, but applied to real life problems that people normally wouldn't solve with a computer. So, you know, how to find a perfect match, uh, life partner. Or you know how to organ how to do organizational design. The first one is really an uh, uh, an example of something well known in computer science called the secretary problem, and the other one is uh, game uh, or game theory. Uh, uh, sorry, um, internet design. Game theory comes in when you try to explain some of the uh, the forces in society. And, you know, Nash equilibria and all of this stuff that you thought was super theoretical was right. so beautifully explained as a part of un thinking in a structured way about solving some of the most complex problems in your life. Right. And and I, I was just thinking, I wish I read this when I was, you know, 20, not now. <laughs> well, I think I think this idea that a lot of, you know, a lot of these algorithms are very abstract and, and sort of hard to understand it's it's not something that comes from their origin because for example for game theory if you read the first paper on game theory that was co-authored by uh von neumann i believe mm -hmm. um the folks back then were really uh and so we're talking 1940s i believe and so we're the folks back then were really focused on solving very practical sort of engineering problems and, and they needed just needed new ways to think about that and then it was only later when you have sort of the next generation of, of academics or people working in the field where they try to generalize it to make it more abstract and suddenly it becomes a sort of mysterious, mysterious thing. So I think the best, the best course of action always is to go back to the original source. What was the problem they were trying to solve? I don't even remember now, which is embarrassing. No, no, but I'm saying <laughs> so, asking what the problem was yeah. helps you understand the basic philosophy of, of the thing. Yeah. So if you want to understand a field, I think reading a bit about the history of the field, mm. uh, I think is very helpful. Um, so like I keep coming back to history, how how helpful that is to, you know, to, to both intellectual history and sort of the history of humanity um, in, in general and how, you know, the, the big story, right? How we came to be um, and that coupled with understanding of how our world is changing now as a result of technology, but not just sort of on the business surface. And certainly b leaders and investors, you know, they have huge challenges now because of all this restructuring that's happening in industries and how their own organizations have to be tremendously restructured to cope with this. Um, but there's a, there's a bigger stage here. There's a bigger picture, uh, involved and that's the story of humanity itself and where humanity is heading. By the way, I love also how these guys who came up with the most, uh, kind of complex and abstract solutions are often super interesting and warm and, and eccentric, um, human beings as well. John Neumann, um, I love one of his quotes, uh, saying how mathematicians are actually machines for or automatons for converting coffee into theorems yes that's, <laughs> that's one of my favorites too um, so um you talk about this value stack mm -hmm. in current companies or industries can you say a few words about that sure yeah so so as part of our our work on this new management science which we call post lean thinking um by the way why why post lean oh it's just because mainstream you know some of the state-of-the-art ideas in in mainstream management science are really based around this lean school, which again, I think is very well known in Norway, which is all about long lasting organizations, preferably um, long employee tenures, investing in people for the future, empowering people by teaching them to be problem solvers and just sort of strategically and patiently working at incrementally innovating uh, uh, what you offer to the customers. Innovating uh, incrementally, but fast. Incrementally, but hopefully, hopefully fast. Um, and you saw this with Lean Startup, which is kind of the st startup uh, flavor of it, um, looking for opportunities out there to create value, um, experimenting with different value propositions, and then on the engineering side, experimenting with how you're going to make it work. Um, and and but what we found after you know a decade of doing that um, with with mostly larger complex enterprises was the world was moving so much faster and and so you needed a more discontinuous type of innovation and uh and so we noticed how industry structures were changing we announced we noticed how organizational structures were changing or needed to change um and so we have to come up with models we have to come up with practical management tools and the value stack model and we have a newer one now called the value graph are, are ways of looking at the structure of industries and and then and, and being able to kind of make sense of of 
what the shapes of those structures are and how they're changing. So the value stack is a way of looking at industries and in layers. So, so give us an example. Uh, well, um, so you, if think about the um, uh, um, oh gosh, you think about the 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 re retail industry, right? So you have you, um, uh, so let's say you're you're um, you're a toy store. So you're buying you know you're buying toys somewhere there are people places are manufacturing those toys and in the value stack those manufacturers are um are in the um what we call the, the you know production construction uh end of the value stack and that, that's a bottom uh layer in the model and we, if you are uh and also like in the construction industry you have companies are building physical things um those activities tend not to be that capital um efficient right um then you have uh let's say that you own um uh you have a uh um uh, a whole a whole bunch of toy stores that you own and so you think of them as assets you're trying to get the most out of your your assets so then you are really kind of an asset management layer just like like airlines are you know you have all these airplanes you have to sell seats you have to improve your asset utilization um and then you have um a, a step above from there you have manual uh, uh services so if you have a cleaning company or have a management consulting company, you're selling services that are you know, uh, done manually. And those kind of are the bottom three layers of the value stack. But what we see now is um, new ventures are being built that uh, have digital business models. So, so we have the, the uh, digital content layer, the value stack, that's where Hulu and Netflix and, and so on live, and Spotify and, and iTunes. Um, and then you have the automated services. So that's where, you know, if you have um a startup like you know salesforce no longer such a startup but salesforce.com or or uh or smaller startups they're basically providing automated services delivered you know over the cloud um and and then if you look at what airbnb and uber and these marketplace organizations are doing they are uh, they live in the next two layers in the stack which we call the interface and marketplace layers the interface layer is where you aggregate you know you, you organize access to 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 um, to people, to to things, you know, to assets and services in the economy, and when when you've done that, you can put them into an online marketplace, which uh, your your customers can take advantage of, and you become a gateway to to um, to those products and uh, uh, or th those those services and assets, and then of course what's happened more recently is we have the beginning now of intelligent agents that can orchestrate commerce and curate products and services on your behalf so um so uh and this is kind of old news now but up till uh, uh nine months ago or so i would bring with me uh, uh a little box um uh you know, alexa yeah mm. um um i would bring with me an echo that ran alexa and i would uh put it on stage and at some point, you know, in, during my keynote, I would accidentally order something <laughs> and, uh, or just have a little conversation mm -hmm. with it and so on. And, and, and what we tell people is, is you have to be aware of, aware of where in the value stack your position. So if you are, um, you know, if you are below the, the marketplace, uh, and interface layers, chances are that someone else will have a gateway that goes goes to you and that's how the customers will find you. And they will cut you. into your margins or control yeah, your ability yeah, to you, price. You essentially, you, you, you have to compromise. You have to have mm. some sort of distribution solution for people mm. to, to find you, right? So, so um, but now what's happening is the, the machine to human marketplaces that marketplace organizations provide will probably be transitioned to machine to machine marketplaces where you will have an agent that talks to the consumer. Um, and that shifts the whole balance of power in terms of branding. Uh, because there's only going to be so many agents that we can talk to because there are only so many brands that we can remember and care about. Um, and so increasingly we will use these intelligent agents, um, to help us, you know, help us orchestrate our lives essentially. And they will go out there and they will find. Uh, they will the know offerings. better than we do. Well, and they will, we won't necessarily have the time. Yeah. So, so, um. This brings yeah. us to an interesting discussion about basically where does this lead us with free will or, you know, something other than efficiencies, oh. but we don't have time for that, Prude. We it's won't more, go there now. More delegation. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine by, by looking at the, the, the patterns of behaviors in your, in your life, you can imagine AIs figuring out what you might want or what you would like. Mm. Um, you, can, you can now 
apply that to a lot of the product development process and then you can get some suggestions for if i see you complain about your chair a lot well here are some design ideas for a chair which one would you like yeah I and then know, it can be manufactured and sent to you just in time consistent and logical and we know we're not so that's what i'm trying that's what i'm worried about mm. you know a system that actually makes me into a consistent data point well, which I, which would be terrible i think it's but i think it's gonna it's the opposite direction i think it's going to be more responsive more individualized mm. by observing you as opposed to trying to because it's the opposite of mass production right it's individualized just-in-time production in, in, in individualized just-in-time satisfaction of your of your needs that's where we're heading yeah i know so. but say you know, it's the 1st of January, you decide I'm going to be so healthy this year and I'll go to the gym and, you know, no more mm -hmm. pizza. And then 3rd of January, you say, I'm really tired. Today I'm staying in, I'm tuning in Netflix and, you know, I want the pizza. Yeah. And then your Alexa says, no way, you know, you go. Right. And I wouldn't want that, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, it's good for me, but I, I'm not sure that um, I like it. I think different people are, uh, desire or require different levels of Tuning. strictness with that <laughs> yeah and and uh and um yeah so so i think i think it can be for some people it can be good for them yeah I, uh, so I'll, I'll we'll we'll go and and drink some wine and then discuss some more offline what i want yeah. you to say a few words about is um you talk about the new management science so mm -hmm. if you had to summarize that in a few sentences what would it be well it's it's really um, looking at what happens to management thinking when all of the industrial era assumptions we've grown up with go out the window. So what you end up with instead of instead of long-lasting, stable, sort of strategic organizations, you end up with this network of micro, just-in-time, short-lived micro-organizations. Um, and this network, or this we call it the, the value graph, uh, much of the governance that happens there will probably be done using AI to leverage a lot of routine governance type of decisions. Um, in where we start realizing that there's a lot of value that can be captured from being the cause of or taking advantage of the restructuring of, of industries uh, to improve their capital efficiency. Um, and, so, and for humans, you know, for, for in terms of our culture and what the sort of human experience is going to be, it's really going to be a world where, where uh, in a post-industrial culture, where we have minute control over our biology and over matter, the way we control software today and so basically instant satisfa satisfaction of our of our needs and desires and where humans are going to work more on doing creative stuff um, that have meaning for us whether it's stem or whether it's art uh exploration all of this stuff and and all the boring repetitive stuff unless you want to do boring repetitive stuff um then you know will be done done by machine machines increasingly and i think this is a transition we're looking at during the course of you know of the next this decade and the next and the one after that and the one after that so 40 50 years is kind of what we're looking at so as a part of this you also talk about how we need to lead in different ways it's mm -hmm. you know organizations as organisms the whole emergence kind of thinking can you say a few words about that yeah so there it's really interesting that, that it's actually quite an old idea to look at organizations like machines a little bit and, and now that's coming back somewhat um, uh, in the 50s and 60s, people started looking at, 1950s and 60s, I should say, people started looking more at organizations as sort of social systems. And of course, both views are true. They're socio-technical organisms, if you will. Um, but because the structure and the lifespan of those, organ or, um, those organizations is changing so dramatically, leadership has to change too. And um, we know that, for example, leading, motivating people through goals and all of this stuff really works. Um, but the but the time span shrinks, and you won't be working with the same people for such a long time anymore. So you're looking at much more just-in-time team formation, and um, putting people together for whatever is the mission of the quarter of this year at you know at the most. And that's going to mean that leaders have to become more emotionally agile. I think. And they also have to be much closer to the action than before. We won't have this sort of hierarchy anymore. We'll have networks, whether it's inside of large organizations, uh, and gradually they will become more open, loosely coupled networks too, or, or across organizations. And so, leaders going around randomly pestering people? or oh, No, the, the <laughs> random routine management work will all be done by AIs, like project scheduling, follow-up on, are you done yet? Are you done yet? You know, all that stuff goes away. That's really more management than leadership anyway. But for leadership, it's really going to be um focusing on and are we working on the right things and do we understand together 
Are we learning together about how the world is changing and how we're going to be part of that? And I think that just means that that you know there's no hiding anymore as a leader. If you don't have the domain knowledge to, to understand on, on the sort of the science engineering uh, um, level, what is concretely that you're changing the world outside, um, then you won't be able to contribute as much uh, as much value. And I think so. There are there are a lot of people who are comfortable leaders working on very abstract levels today. Um, who will not be as comfortable in the, in their future. So I think organizational leadership um, is going to be a lot more like running a startup, uh, even in large organizations, than, than it is today. And a lot of organizations today, leaders are more administrators than leaders. Hmm. So. What about um, uh, when you do these workshops, you you get people to understand some, some kind of patterns. Mm-hmm. You talk about organizations as higher order functions. What, what Can you say that very briefly? Oh, yeah, so so um, so high order functions or high order programs is just a concept from theoretical computer science, and it just means you can imagine you have a, a function or program that just creates another program. Um, so so um, as opposed to returning a number or something like that. So um, and the idea of high order organizations, uh, you know, it came to me because it um, it was obvious that larger firms needed to rearrange themselves, restructure themselves to become platforms for creating new ventures, new disruptive ventures of their own. Because a lot of large companies now are playing defense, right? They're being disrupted. They're trying to respond, um, but they're not set up to attract, you know, young innovators because young innovators said might as well go do their own startup. It's a lot more fun than work for a big boring company. Um, and, and then also, um, uh, if they compensate people as you know normal employees, that that sort of employee-employer relationship doesn't really fit with um, with the culture where you, where people are willing and able to take risk and try new things. And so w- we came up with this sort of organizational design pattern, which we call a higher-order organization, where where an organization becomes a platform for recruiting um, innovators from the outside, uh, having a a, a compensation. Um, arrangement with them where they basically become co-founders of the new ventures they help create. And then when, and then using um, the value stack and the value graph as a way of scanning industries to understand how the structures industries are changing. And then based on that, forming ideas for new disruptive ventures. And when those ventures mature to a certain point, they might be spun off from the, from the parent. Um, and, uh, and of course the, uh, the innovators who help you build that, uh, help uh, you build that venture, uh, they will make up, yeah, you know, really well. And then you might have instead of a guaranteed uh, job safety or expectations of long employee tenures, maybe you will have a maximum employee tenure. So you get two years to make your mark. Time to go. Yeah. And then, so then you sort of graduate, right? So Graduating so, from companies. That's actually a, yeah. a lovely idea. And honestly, in a lot of places, people do that anyway. Like General Electric will move you around. It's up or out, you know, every 18 months, 24 months. Um, but here, so, out is the best outcome, basically, what you're saying. Well, but out, not in the sense of getting fired, but, yeah. you know, but you're sort of, you well, you can have an option where people, you could re-up, right? So, so they that's do that in the military. That's a new idea for uh, unions. Yeah. Well, unions is, uh, that's a whole other fun a chapter of seeking organizations being, being disrupted. You actually but, do have a nice positive vision for unions. Yeah. Say, I, say what it is. Well, um, the idea of, of, of organizations as separate legal entities, yeah, really begins in the Roman Empire. That's the origin of, 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 of corporates and corporations, right? So they had bylaws and everything. And then in, in medieval Europe- It means a body. Uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. So, so um, in, in medieval uh, Europe, you had these guilds, right? Which are, uh, and also in, actually even back in Rome, you had guilds. And so that was a, uh, a type of body that kind of organized labor that had, um, you know, a, a, certain, a certain specialty, whether they were cutting hair or making pottery, whatever their specialty was. And um, unions then, in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, became uh, partially a way to sort of organize salary negotiation with employers, partially a a source of sort of social welfare before the state took over those functions. Um, And actually, there were industrialists like in the States, um, like Andrew Carnegie, who encouraged the formation of unions. And he, you know, he was uh, supportive of literacy programs for, for workers and so on. And then eventually you had this sort of atmosphere of, of us versus them, which I think um, certainly my generation here in Norway grew up with, with that. Um, 
and unions is sort of the the even with protection by through labor regulations as you know source of labor and and so on well a lot of the jobs that were traditional union jobs are kind of going away and and the lifespan of organizations are shrinking so maybe it's time to go back to this sort of guild model where which really develops is members yeah where you develop members and then of course unions now have to compete and they could even be for-profit entities um and so if you're a member of this uh of the guild, you know they might help you with some certifications maybe that that guild has a trusted brand um mm. and um and then they serve their members essentially by preparing them for for the future or rather for the current disruption that's that's happening um but the idea of sort of unions versus uh employers you know it's it's really a false conflict i mm. mean the 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 and i think both not just unions but employers organizations too will face sort of a similar um a similar uh, disruption threat i mean why why do you if you're building uh, uh if you're building startups that can become global companies with 11 12 employees um and you know think of instagram being acquired for a billion dollars with 13 people right why do you need a large employer organization hmm. you know they're relevant they're both relics from an industrial era so all that stuff will go away we need jobs we need middle class my dear well we do but it's going to be much more about self-organizing to create your own jobs and because firms will not need as many people anymore to do the same kinds of things because of automation and ai and so on it means that a much larger percentage of the population will be founding their own their own ventures so in a way um uh, one way that we uh, we've summarized this um and i mentioned this in my keynotes is we're kind of going back to a very high-tech version of the mesolithic you know before everything became settled down and static um when we were we were agile we were moving around when we had pop-up villages and you know but think of that but with nanotechnology and ai that's really what the post-industrial uh, um, uh, transition is about so it's going to be a fun century ahead. except uh, men have to watch out now because of me too but we won't go there now. <laughs> <laughs> everyone uh, everyone has to watch out for bad behavior when you have an increasingly open culture because of real-time media that everyone's linked into everywhere and this is just kind of the current example of that but you're, mm-hmm. you're gonna see any kind of corporate misbehavior um any kind of dishonest dealings you know you see um you know with with, with its ranking uber drivers and you get a bad ranking you know, below four you can't pick up any passenger suddenly anymore or if you're a passenger and you behave badly nobody will come you know you won't be able to get a, a car to come pick you up anymore so this sort of this sort of um putting it out in the open i think is also part of, of the cultural transition that we're going through and i think it's a good thing yeah through the i knew we we're going to run out of time and so we did but i still need to ask you the two final questions sure um first of all do you have any policy advice for you know increased innovation throughout the society yeah um the the, the we need to make it short the old paradigm of industrial policy was really based around projections and central planning and and control or at least having a strong centralized vision of which way things uh, which way the economy should develop and so people talk about you know traditional strong areas for norway and and the same thing in, in other countries i think it's unrealistic i think the best way is to deregulate from a perspective of, of positioning yourself to be as agile as possible um, and understanding that that the people who really are building the country are the people who are creating the new disruptive ventures and you should welcome them not put barriers uh, that make it hard for them to build those ventures and exit and that means all the things that people that entrepreneurs complain about you know in different countries uh, like here people talk about the options taxation and all of that stuff and Arbeitsmittelloven and so on all that stuff really needs to be looked at and I think instead of having a, a cautious defensive posture I think celebrating those young people who really are going to be building the new the new Norway I think is extremely important for policymakers. And look at Estonia. I mean their number what 7 on the economic freedom index. Norway is way down so you can compare Norway to a former Soviet republic and you can actually learn from them. And I, I talk to people here in Oslo who go from Estonia, go to Estonia. Um like um one really awesome guy that I met with is uh Fredrik Winter. Um and um and we just met on on Friday for the first time and he said they came back from Estonia and they were all inspired and and people from the US are are visiting Estonia and learning from them so the 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 all powers uh are not necessarily going to dominate within the country 
nor are the countries that did well in the past. Like people look at America and there's a lot of entrepreneurial things about America that are great, but people shouldn't assume that Silicon Valley will be, will be, um, uh, run, you know, uh, will be leading all of this stuff forever. I mean, I think it's all up for grabs for everyone. And so it's up to policymakers in every country to pursue those opportunities aggressively and think of their countries as potential platforms for innovation globally as a, as a global fountain of, um, of innovation and, and wealth and, and, uh, all sorts of good stuff, as opposed to just thinking about what can we do inside our own country. Final question, your best advice, you get to choose to whom? Oh gosh. Um, well, we, we talked about, uh, yes, if you don't hurry up, that, that would be a question. <laughs> well, I, I would say uh, to, to folks who run mature companies is, um, is you need to reorganize to become, to attract young innovators and become a platform for future innovation. And you need to move a lot faster than you're moving. And they should know that already, but if they don't, <laughs> this is my reminder. So what about, um, everybody else? Learn how, learn more about not just, don't just learn how to code, learn how things work, get curious about STEM, get curious about history, how the world works, where the world is going, read everything that you can get your hands on all directions, become curious. Hmm. I love your curiosity. I love how you connect very unusual fields and it's really, um, kind of a, uh, always an inspiring pleasure actually to chat with you when you come over here to enjoy some of our nice winter weather, having all your Californian sun. So Frude, thanks for um, inspiring and thanks for um, visiting with us in this podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks for listening. Tusen tack för att du hörte på podcastserien De som bygger det nya Norge. För fler episoder och annat innehåll gå in på obeforum.no. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.